You're listening to the Dwell on These Things podcast, a regular dose of Christ-centered encouragement to put your mind in a better place. Listen in as Pastor John Stonge shares Bible studies, interviews, training, and some of his most recent sermons. We're glad to have you with us today. Last week, we started a new series in the book of Colossians, and um, the book of Colossians is a great book. We just finished the, our, our series in, in uh, Ephesians, and Colossians and Ephesians, I, I decided to do these together because they were written at the same time. These are two books that were, they're, they're two of three books that were written at the same time. Paul also wrote Philemon at the same time during his imprisonment in Rome. And uh, I, I wanted us to, to take the time to work our way through the book of Colossians for the coming weeks, because in this portion of Scripture, in this chapter, in this book, I should say, we are shown what it means to know the real Jesus and to live in His truth. And there's a variety of doctrinal things that are explained here, and there's a variety of practical things that are demonstrated to us in regard to our Christian life, very much like the book of Ephesians is set up. So you see a very similar pattern in how both of these books are set up. And today we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 9. I'm going to read down to verse 14. And as we look at this portion of Scripture, we're going to be talking about what it looks like to pray for the spiritual maturity of your family in Christ. Now, there's a variety of things that you and I probably pray for, and we'll even talk about that in just a few minutes. But here, one of the things that you can see that the Apostle Paul is praying for on behalf of the the church at Colossae is he's praying that they would grow spiritually mature. And so we're going to talk about what that looks like as we look at this portion of Scripture together and what it looks like to be praying about that on behalf of other people. So Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 9, this is what it says. And so from the day we heard, and by the way, he's talking there about hearing about them coming to faith in Christ and and a church being established in their midst, he says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy." giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be able to look at your word together this morning. We're grateful, Lord, for just the privilege that it is to be able to carve out time to do this knowing, Lord, that we could be doing all sorts of things right now. But, Lord, this is time we have set aside to worship you. And in this time, we want to look at what your word states, and we ask for the wisdom of your spirit and your power so that we would learn these things and apply these truths to our day-to-day lives, just as you desired the church at Colossae to do. So, Lord, prepare our minds and our hearts to receive these truths this morning, and we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week I I did something that overall I think was wise, but admittedly it's something that tends to be either a little out of character for me or just a little bit out of practice for me. It's not something I typically do. 
And uh, I'll set this up by, by mentioning this. So throughout the course of my adult life, I have frequently said yes to opportunities to volunteer or to serve with ministries that are important to me. That's something that I've done with, with some degree of regularity. And when I accept those responsibilities, one of the things that tends to be a pattern, and my wife and I joke about this a little bit, but when I accept those responsibilities, I tend to hold on to them for a very long time, even as I'm saying yes to additional responsibilities and additional opportunities. So does anyone else have that problem, too, where you say yes to too many things? So I do that because once I say yes to something, for some reason in my mind, I think, well, obviously this must be a lifelong commitment. Maybe this is something I will continue doing in eternity. I don't know. But that's something that, um, that I tend to have a habit of doing. But instead of taking on a new responsibility this week, I actually stepped down from one, which surprises everybody in my household. Many of you know that uh, for about probably a little less than 10 years, I've been serving as a faculty member on uh, the School of Theology that, I, that helps train uh, new and upcoming pastors each summer and throughout the course of the, the year. We teach courses and do different things. And, uh, and I decided, you know what, I think it's time for me to step down from that role. Now, did I do this because I don't want to invest in the training of up-and-coming pastors? Thank you for giving me the benefit of the doubt. Um, the, the interesting thing is, since I first started serving in that role, the opportunities that the Lord has given to me have changed drastically. And what I mean by that is this. My ministry in other areas has expanded dramatically since I first said yes to that responsibility, and through those things... I get to serve more pastors than I was serving in the past. And so it dawned on me, I was accepting new responsibilities and not ever saying goodbye to some of the old ones. And I mention this because I want you to think about something, especially if you have the same personality style or tendencies that I have, because I don't think what I'm saying here is uncommon. But I mention this because I think that this is a decision I probably made, should have made, Uh, maybe about two years ago. I started thinking about it about two years ago, but I hesitated to do so. And I think that hesitation actually reveals to me an area of maturity that I think the Lord wants me to develop. So we're talking today about this idea of praying for spiritual maturity of others. Let me just confess to you an area that I think I need to mature in. I like projects. I like working on things. I like taking on tasks, and I, I like remaining committed to those tasks for long periods of time. But the downside of what sounds like, I would think, some very positive traits is my, my reliance on my dedication can sometimes minimize my dependence on the Lord's intervention through prayer. Do you know what I mean by that? Like sometimes I can become a little bit over-dependent on thinking that something like that comes down to what I do instead of entrusting the well-being of something over to the Lord's intervention through prayer. So I think it could be very easy for a personality like mine to unintentionally begin trusting the effort of their own hands more so than the powerful hand of God. And I think that was an example of that. I can, I can actually point out other examples in my life where I'm asking the Lord to just kind of help me develop maturity in those areas where I'm not over trusting or over-relying on my effort, but where I'm willing to trust him to do what only he can do. And I bring that up in the spirit of maturity that we're looking at as we look at this passage, but also because I want to segue into into just a quick thought about the Apostle Paul. 
Because when you look at the Apostle Paul's life, I think Paul was a man of action. It doesn't matter whether I think he was. He, he was, right? He was a man of action. And I'm grateful for what this man of action shares with the church and with church leaders in this passage of Scripture that we just read together. Because what he demonstrates here is the importance of prayer being lifted up on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that can be a spiritual discipline that at times gets minimized. But here he's emphasizing the importance of prayer. Now, Paul at the time certainly wished that he could have been with that church in person. He wished that he could be with the the believers in Colossae in person, but at the time he was confined. He was under house arrest in Rome. He was awaiting trial. And so in the midst of that challenging season, what he ended up doing was saying, all right, I can certainly write to this church and I can certainly counsel their leaders, but in the midst of that, I need to be praying for this church. And so he would pray for this young church at Colossae over and over and over again. Paul prayed for their spiritual maturity. And I like looking at this because he's giving us a spirit-led example of how we could also be praying for one another and also developing spiritual maturity in our day-to-day lives where we learn to value what what God values, where we learn to prioritize the things that God prioritizes. And so when you look at some of the things that Paul is praying about on behalf of the church of Colossae, I want you to be thinking about these things and maybe even incorporate these ideas into your own prayer life as you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes, and I'll even make mention of this right now because I'll tell you um, something I was thinking about while we were singing. I, like, this won't surprise you, but pastors love Sundays when we run out of chairs, okay? Like, I know that it's technically a problem when people are standing in the back of the sanctuary looking for a place, and I feel bad for half a second, but most of the time I'm like, sweet, we ran out of chairs, and Because I have to stand the whole worship service, so I don't feel great compassion if you have to stand. Um, but I look at that, and I, I still remember 13 and a half years ago when there were 12 of us, you know, six family members of mine and six others, and some of you were there during that time. I look around this room, I see a few of you, and I know you're thinking the same thing I'm thinking. Sometimes I look around the room and I think, wow, Lord, thank you so much for for developing our church. Thank you so much for growing our church. And obviously, we want our church to grow in numbers. We want our church to serve our community. We want to reach as many people as the Lord allows us to reach. But we don't want to be surface level. We want to be a mature church in all areas, reaching people but going deep with Christ. And that was the type of thing that Paul was excited about. He was excited that new people were part of the church at Colossae and that the church was growing. But he wanted them to be deep. He wanted them to be deep fully committed believers in Jesus Christ. And that, this is something here. If you think about ways in which you could pray for the people that you're seated near, and our church family in general, those even joining us on live stream, these are some things that we could be praying about. These are things that would be wise for us to incorporate into our prayer life as we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And one of the things that he starts off with here is this idea of praying for your wise and fruitful life. That's what he prays for the church at Colossae. You know, he's, I'm praying for your wise and fruitful life. How does he phrase it? Look again at verses 9 and 10. He says it this way. He says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
Now let's pause there for just a second. And just think about the context in which Paul was writing this in. So living in the midst of the season of history that Paul was living in, in that moment, and living in the context that he was presently in, being under home confinement, that was obviously a challenge for the Apostle Paul. And I'm guessing that along that way, there were probably plenty of discouraging moments and plenty of discouraging days or disappointing days that Paul had to endure during that season of life. He wanted to be mobile. He wanted to be active. But instead, he was confined, and he was waiting for the government to finally get around to doing whatever it was they were going to do, but he had to wait there, and it was years that he waited there. And when you're in the midst of a season of life that's like that, it's certainly refreshing to get some good news from time to time. And so I'm sure Paul welcomed that good news. Who doesn't welcome good news, right? We welcome good news at any season of life, but particularly when you're going through a season of life that kind of has you feeling discouraged and beaten down. It's nice to get some good news. And so when Paul started hearing reports about the church at Colossae, about the founding of this church, about the growth of this church, about the development of these believers, I'm sure he was thrilled. I'm sure he was ridiculously excited to hear this. And I suspect that hearing this helped Paul say, you know what? This is all worth it. If this keeps happening, this is all worth it. His discomfort, his earthly difficulties, the pain, the, the, the challenges that he was going through, it was all worth it if in the end the result would be the founding, the expansion, and the growth of local churches. And Paul said that from the day he heard of the Colossian believers, he and those who served with him had not ceased to pray for them. They did not cease praying for them. From that day, so from the moment they're hearing about this, he and those who are serving with them, they had not ceased to pray for this church. They prayed for these believers daily. Now, I don't know if you have a prayer list. I would suspect that probably many of us gathered in this room have a prayer list. And uh, if you do, I'm just curious, are there certain things on that list that seem to be things you pray about every day? Because I know on my list, there are certain things that regardless of whether things are going well or whether it feels like things are going poorly or, or whether somewhere in between, there are certain people, there are certain circumstances or even certain ideas and concepts that I find myself praying about regardless of the season. They are everyday prayers. They are not momentary prayers. In fact, just recently, I mentioned to, to my kids that, that they might actually be surprised to know how much of my time during the course of any given week is actually spent praying for them. I don't think that that's ever going to be something that changes, right? You know? And when Paul was praying here for the Colossians, what requests did he make of the Lord? He's praying for them, and he says he's doing this. They're doing this every day, right? Well, for starters, he prayed that they would have a wise and fruitful life. Now, wisdom begins with having a genuine reverence and a genuine respect for the Lord. If you and I intend to grow in wisdom and yet we do not revere the Lord, and we do not respect the Lord, we will not grow in wisdom. We will grow in rebellion. We will grow in foolishness. We will adopt the world's mindset as our own mindset, and we will tell ourselves we are wise, and we will do what every fool throughout the course of human history has done. Tell yourself you're wise while embracing foolishness. But if you revere and you respect the Lord at the core of your being, you have now set yourself up to be receptive to the wisdom that he supplies. And when you receive the wisdom that the Lord amply supplies, and then you begin applying that wisdom to your day-to-day -day life through the counsel of his spirit, through the, the content of his word, through the fellowship that you have with other believers, you're going to live a healthy and fruitful life. 
It's going to be a healthy and fruitful life. Now, it doesn't mean you're never going to have medical needs. It doesn't mean you're not going to have challenges along the way. But overall, when you assess your life, you'll be able to look at it and say, you know what, that was a healthy life. It's a life full of many challenges, but it was a healthy life. And when we adopt the Lord's wisdom, we can expect that to be the outcome. Now, those who reject the counsel of God will not experience that outcome. Eventually, their rejection of godly wisdom will catch up with them. They'll pay for it in ways they don't anticipate because their eyes and their hearts are not open to the truth. And Paul knew that this young church was probably struggling in a variety of areas of of spiritual maturity. In fact, some of the report that he had received about them kind of outlined some of those things. We're going to see him address them as we work our way through the book. But what he did here is he prayed that they would be divinely filled with spiritual wisdom and with understanding, that their young hearts and their young minds that were young in faith would be filled with the wisdom and understanding that ultimately only God can supply. And he also prayed that that would result in them living in a manner that pleased the Lord. That's a good outcome of that, right? If we're actually adopting the wisdom of God, should that not impact the way we treat each other and the way we conduct ourselves and and the internal motivations that we adopt? He also prayed that this would be something that would become very obvious about their life, that this would be their walk, that when you looked at these believers, that this would be something that you would see. Now, I just want to ask us this in a personal way, because it's easy to talk about people that lived generations ago, but in regard to our own walk with Christ, is it our own desire for our own lives and for the lives of our children to walk in that kind of way, to live a life that pleases the Lord, like Paul was talking about here, to walk in a manner that pleases the Lord? Do we embrace the Lord's wisdom? Do we wake up every day with a desire in our hearts to walk by faith in Jesus Christ and thereby bring a smile? to the Lord's face? Is that the desire of your heart and my heart? Is that something that motivates us? I want to tell you, I want to show you something from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, if that's something that's on your mind. In Hebrews 11, verse 6, it says this, it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Think about that statement for just a second. And maybe we could even tie it back to what I confessed to you about myself just a few minutes ago. I think sometimes it's very easy for me and probably for most of us to go through life thinking that it will be the effort of my hands that pleases the Lord. And sometimes that can actually translate into becoming faith in yourself more so than faith in the Lord. Do you ever think about that? That it could actually be the fruit of a false gospel that you've been preaching to your heart? And then you look at Hebrews eleven six, 6, and what does it tell us? You know, if we're talking about, like, well, what Paul here is praying for the Colossians, right? He's praying that they would please the Lord, that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's the way he says it. Well, I want my life to please the Lord. Straight up, I want my life to please the Lord. I want the Lord to be able to look at my life and be pleased with what he's seeing. That has not always been the desire of my heart, but it certainly is right now. And this is what Paul was saying for these believers. He's saying, all right, this is the kind of life that I want you to embrace. Well, if you want to please the Lord, Scripture tells us in Hebrews 11 how that's done. And that's why I just read that for us. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please Him. And it's not talking about faith in yourself. And it's not talking about faith in your efforts. And it's not faith in your checklist. It's not faith in your long-term commitments. It's faith in Him. 
For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's this idea that the Lord is ultimately going to work all circumstances out in your life for his glory and for your good. It's a genuine trust that the Lord has his hand on your, on your life and on the days that he's blessed you with and on the steps that you're taking. And you just walk by faith. It's like you wake up each day and it's like, Lord, what do you have for me today? And then you end each day saying, Lord, I'm good with what you had for me today. I am content in you. I don't need the things of this world to try and satisfy the desires of my heart. I find my satisfaction in you. I delight in you. So if we walk through life with genuine faith in Jesus Christ, Scripture is very clear to us that that is pleasing to God. And it's interesting because Scripture also tells us that our days are numbered. And when you think about that, I think that number is probably less than we would think that it is for most people. Everybody thinks that they're going to live to be 170. It doesn't usually work out that way for us, right? So we could spend our time chasing the vanities of this world, like most people do, like most people in your life do, and like even many professing Christians choose to do, or we can choose to live to please Jesus Christ. Pleasing Christ, living by faith in Him, is the wisest and most fruitful way you can use your life. So again, Paul's looking at this church in Colossae, and he's saying, right, they're young believers. They've only recently heard the gospel. This church was just recently founded. It's not like they grew up in Christian households where they could say, oh, my grandparents loved Jesus, and my parents loved Jesus, and they raised me to love Jesus. No, they were the first generation. They had no previous examples of this in their families. I'm sure many of them came out of paganism and all sorts of craziness. And he's saying, I pray, I'm praying that you're going to live a wise and fruitful life in Christ. And that's something that we can be praying about for one another as we seek to grow in Christ together. There's something else that Paul talks about here. It's a very positive thing, very wonderful thing. He talks also about praying for your strong and joyful life. Well, that sounds pleasing to me. What do you think? That sounds wonderful, a strong and joyful life. Who would oppose a strong and joyful life? Look at what he says in verse 11. He says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. It's a beautiful verse, isn't it? Um, Anyone here grow up in Northeast Pennsylvania? I grew up in Northeast Pennsylvania. All right, just a few of us, not too many. All right, most of us grew up other places. So I grew up in a small city that was very hilly. I grew up in Carbondale, Pennsylvania, where the fun fact, if you wanted to know this, which I know you don't, but I'm going to tell you anyway, Uh, The first coal mine in America was dug in my hometown, Carbondale, Pennsylvania. The first coal mine in the United States was dug there. And if you ever go there, you're going to notice something about it. There are certain flat areas of the city, like Main Street is pretty flat, and some of the areas that lead right up to the river and River Street, that's pretty flat. But it's primarily a city of steep hills and sharp inclines. And in the years before I owned a car... I used to walk the streets and the sidewalks of that city constantly. That was my constant task. I would just do that all the time. Wherever I wanted to go, thankfully, it was you know, pretty well developed. And so there were sidewalks that led to anywhere you pretty much wanted to go. And so I just walked the city constantly. And honestly, and you know, I'd, it'd probably be tricky to figure out because I used to spend so much time doing this, but I would love to know how many miles I would walk in an average day. I would love if someone could tell me how, much mile, how many miles I was walking at that period of time, because I'm convinced it was a lot. And walking that hilly city 
day after day, night after night, year after year, what it ended up doing was it actually made, during that season of my life, it made my legs very, very strong. And it also gave me good cardiovascular endurance. And so when I was in high school, I used to run cross country. People meet me now, they probably think I'm lying, you know? I got a car when I was 16. Things changed. But prior to that, I, I, I used to, and every day after school, I'd go and I'd, I'd run five miles. I mean, I can't even imagine that. I'd think if, if I did that in the course of a week, I'd be like, that's an accomplishment, John. Good job. Maybe even in a month, you know? But back then, it's like five, five miles a day after school, unless you had a meet. And on Fridays, because there was the weekend, we had to run 10 miles. So Fridays after school, I would run 10 miles. And I look back at that, and, and it, was, it, it was nothing. Like, we just did it. I didn't think much about it. We just did it. And I enjoyed it. I didn't always want it to end. I liked it. I'd really love to recapture some of that strength during this season of life. Need to get rid of the car, right? (laughs) But when our minds think of strength, because Paul here is talking about strength. When our minds think of strength, we often think of physical strength first, right? That's usually the first thing that comes to my mind. When someone talks about strength, I typically think about physical strength first. But there's more than one kind of strength So some people in this world are emotionally strong because of the tests that they have endured during the course of their life, and they are emotionally strong. Others are relationally strong because of the other-centeredness that they've they've developed and that they've learned to show to other people over the course of a long period of time. Many people are mentally strong because they just embrace knowledge and they spend a lot of time trying to gather more knowledge and more information. And each of these areas of strength have value. Every single one of them has value. But there's a strength that outshines them all because it's everlasting in nature. Becoming spiritually strong in Christ, like, ta- like Paul is talking about here in this passage, is, is something that holds value not just for now, but forever. And it reminds me of something that Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let me read it for us. In 1 Timothy 4, 8, he says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So Paul shared this with Timothy. Timothy was a young church leader at the time. He's also praying these things for the church at Colossae. And so when he's praying about their strength, he's not really talking about relational strength or physical strength or emotional strength, although I do think those things can be derivatives of spiritual strength. I think if we grow spiritually, we start to learn to value health and strength in all kinds of areas. But Paul here is praying for the strength of the Colossian believers. He wanted them to grow in godliness. And as they grew in godliness, as they grew strong in their walk with Christ, he also wanted them to remember the source of their strength. Paul asked the Lord to make the the people of this church powerful with his glorious might. He wanted them to be genuinely strong. And he knew that there were a variety of painful things that this young church was going to experience in the midst of a hostile world. He knew that they would need to exercise great patience because of, of the tests that they would be forced to go through. He also knew that their willingness to express joy in the midst of pain was going to be very challenging. And so he prayed that the Lord would make them strong with his power. And I love reading verses like this, and I love thinking about their present-day implications for people like you and me, because power is something I think we all desire. Now think about this for just a second. There are people in this world who are intoxicated with the thought of obtaining power. 
And when you read throughout human history, even if you just read throughout the course of the past 100 years, you will find several names that will stand out to you who were clearly intoxicated with the thought of obtaining power. And there's others who will do, even in our present day, everything they possibly can to hold on to power once they obtain it. Power is something I think we intrinsically want. But here's the thing about present-day power. Present-day power, the limited power of the present age, it goes away with the passage of time. Or it's eventually taken away by force. That's the outcome of present-day power. It's the outcome of worldly power. It either goes away with the passage of time or someone stronger takes it away. But the power that God delights to supply you and me with is a power that does not fade over time. can't be taken away by earthly kings. And it's a power that Scripture tells us has the ability to stand up to demonic strongholds. It's a power that can be exercised in a meek manner for the benefit of others. You know, when the Bible's using the word meek, it's talking about this idea of having power, but keeping that power under control, keeping it disciplined, under control. And we keep this power under control for the benefit of others, just as Christ demonstrated during the course of his earthly life. And so let me ask you something very personal, and I hope you'll think about this with me for just a second, because I think it matters. Do you believe that you possess that kind of power? Do you think you actually have that kind of power? So if not, why? And if so, what are you doing with it? Or maybe I could ask it this way. What difference does it make for you and me to live with the power of God in the midst of this fallen world? What What does it look like to approach each day confident that God's power is at work within you? That you do not need to approach each day relying on your own strength or your own wisdom, that you could rely on the wisdom and strength of God, and that He amply supplies it to you. What difference does that make in your life? How about when you're standing up against temptation? Do you approach that temptation with the faith that you could actually overcome the temptation? Or do you look at that temptation and say, you know what, this thing is has gotten me so many times, I'm just going to give in because I always give in because I don't have the power to stand up to it. Well, according to what Scripture says, you actually do have the power to stand up to it. Or how about this? How about the people in your day-to-day life that test your patience? Because you look at what Paul's praying about here, right? He's praying that that they would be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Are there people, don't answer with names, but just a nod would be sufficient. Are there people in your life who test your patience? I don't think you can make it through this life without many people testing your patience. Over the course of any given day or any given week or any given year, there are people that do that. Maybe you are the one that is testing the patience of other people. That's probably also true. But when that happens, when your patience is being tested, either with your circumstances or with people, or even macro things, there are certain things that I look at in a macro scale, and I look at and I'm like, this just drives me nuts. And I won't get specific, all right? Just read my mind. There are certain things that just drive me nuts. And I look at it, and I'm like, How? this is crazy. Like, are we just going to embrace crazy forever? And I think, boy, this really tests my patience. And then I think, yeah, but you have the power of God, and he wants you to demonstrate some control, so zip it on occasion. Fine. But isn't it nice? But isn't it nice to know that as you're approaching each day, that you don't have to approach each day with your own limited strength? 
that if you have faith in Jesus Christ and His Spirit lives within you, you have the same power that rose Christ from the, day, that from the dead actively at work within you. And it's actually a mark of maturity when we come to recognize that. If you're seeking to grow spiritually mature, one of the things that you need to recognize about yourself is the genuine power that has been made available to you and that you have the opportunity to use it and utilize it and bless others with it. You have not been left powerless in the midst of challenging circumstances. You have not been left powerless in the midst of a fallen world. And here the Apostle Paul is praying for this young church that they would start to understand that this is part of how God has equipped them to live their Christian life in the midst of this world. That's something that I think is so refreshing. And he wanted them to understand what it looks like to live this strong and joyful life in Christ. And there was one other thing that he pointed out in this portion of Scripture. And this is where you're going to start noticing this book. It's going to take on a theological feel for the next little bit. You're going to see him starting to say, all right, church, because you love Jesus and because I'm praying for your maturity, let me teach you some deeper level things about what Christ has accomplished on your behalf so that you know it and so that you grow. And what he starts doing here is he starts praying with thanksgiving to the Father who gave us life, and then he outlines in these verses what that life actually looks like and what it entails. He says in verse 12, he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Then he goes on to say, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So please notice the progressive nature of the work that the Lord's done on our behalf as it's explained in these verses, from verse 12 down to verse 14. In this passage, we see that in Christ, notice these five words, in Christ we are qualified, we are delivered, we are transferred, we are redeemed, and we are forgiven. Believers in Christ have been miraculously moved from death to life. And for this reason, we can give the Lord ongoing thanks. So think about those words. Again, he says we're qualified, delivered, transferred, redeemed, forgiven. What's the significance of each of these things? Well, why should we thank God for qualifying us? What's that all about? Well, Scripture tells us that we've been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints. Now, typically, language related to an inheritance from God was reserved for the Jewish people. You would see that all throughout the course of the, the, the Old Testament as the Lord would, would reveal these things, talking about this inheritance that He had given His people. But now Gentile believers are also being told that they will share in an eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God, an inheritance that is theirs because they've been given the name of Christ and they've been given the righteousness of Christ. So through Christ, you have been qualified. Well, I think that's good theological information to understand about the nature of our relationship with Him. But there's something else he says. He also talks about this idea of being delivered. Well, why should we thank God for delivering us? Well, we were once subjects in the kingdom of darkness. We were dominated by sin. We were overpowered by Satan. And we were subject to death. But now we've been rescued by Jesus and we've been transferred to His kingdom of light. So we were once in darkness, and now we're in light. Well, that certainly prompts my heart to be thankful. 
How about this? He talks about this idea of redemption, this idea of being redeemed. Well, why should we thank God for redeeming us? Well, to redeem someone or to redeem something is to purchase another person's freedom. You're redeeming something. Freedom is being purchased. The blood of Christ was shed to pay for your freedom. Our freedom was purchased with His blood. And through this act, we are offered the only opportunity that we have to be free from slavery to sin. That's what it means to be redeemed. You don't have to be a slave to sin because your, your freedom was purchased with the shed blood of Jesus Christ. One other word that he used there was forgiven. Right? You're forgiven. Why should we thank God for forgiving us? Well, how terrible would it be to one day stand in his presence with every ill thought and every damaging word we've ever spoken and every act of rebellion that we've committed against him still being held against us? At one time, Scripture tells us we were living as enemies of God. And I would dread to stand in the presence of God if that was still my status. My status was still that I was an enemy of God and standing in His presence with that as my status. No thank you. But Scripture reveals that Christ bore our condemnation on the cross. He absorbed the penalty for our sin. and He granted us the gift of His righteousness when we trusted in Him. So in Christ, we experience complete forgiveness because our sin is no longer being held against us, and for this, we can be thankful. And so you have the Apostle Paul expressing great thankfulness for each of these things, and each of these words that he's using has a deep theological significance, and you're going to notice that that's the tone that he takes for the next little bit as we work through this portion of Scripture in the coming weeks. But for these things, we can be thankful because we've been qualified, we've been delivered, we've been transferred, we've been redeemed, we've been forgiven. I know some of you are school teachers. I think you'll probably appreciate this. I recently read a story of an elementary school teacher who asked her class to actually draw something they were thankful for. That's typically something teachers will ask young children to do, usually around Thanksgiving, and that's when this took place. And so the students were drawing stuff that they were thankful for, and, and her students happened to live in a very depressed and a, a very uh, declining community. It was a community that was known for uh, just a lot of problems, a lot of, lot of crime, a lot of, um, lot of issues presently there. And some of the, the students would demonstrate just in their demeanor that they were living in contexts that really didn't feel all that safe. And so that, that would come out in a variety of ways. And one of her students, a young boy, tended to be very timid. And she noticed that he would tend to stick with her just about everywhere she went, especially when they would leave the class for things like recess or for other things that were going on. And when she looked at what he drew, he drew something strange. She asked what they were thankful for, and he drew something strange. It was starting to get the attention of some of the other kids, because all he did was he drew a picture of a hand. And it, wasn't, it was at Thanksgiving time, but it wasn't a hand turkey. It was just a hand. You know, at Thanksgiving, you know, there's always like a hand turkey craft somewhere, right? It was just a hand, but it wasn't decorated. It was just a hand. And so she looked at it, and the other students were trying to guess what it meant because they felt like it probably meant something. And so one of the students thought, like, is that the hand of a farmer? Because farmers produce food, and sometimes we don't feel like we have enough food. So are you saying, I'm thankful for food? And then someone said, is it maybe like a police officer's hand because they, they help and protect us when, when, uh, you know, when we're experiencing crime and things like that? And so people were debating this, but the student said, no, he drew the picture of the hand of his teacher because she would often reach out and take him by the hand when he felt scared or when he felt unsafe. 
So this was his tribute to her. This is what he was thankful for. The hand of his teacher that would often take his hand when he was scared. And I look at this portion of Scripture, and I think about the fact that God himself has graciously reached out his hand to you and to me. We were scared, we were distant, we were unsafe, and yet he reached into our lives to intervene and then assure us of his presence. And Scripture tells us that he sent his Son to rescue us and to remind us of his compassionate desire to intervene. So as we pray to him with grateful hearts, on behalf of others, on behalf of ourselves, we can thank him for the spiritual maturity that he's fostering within us. And I think, he could also, or I think that we could also thank him for just the opportunity to express our thankfulness, but just thank him that he's given us these thankful hearts to begin with as we gradually grow to appreciate all he's done on our behalf. And I actually think that's a lifelong exercise. I think that you and I will spend the majority of our lives from the moment we know Christ till the time we see him face to face, gaining a deeper level of appreciation and a deeper level of understanding for yet another facet or another sub-area or another application of what the Lord has done for us. This was something Paul was thanking the Lord for, and he had a lot of opportunity to ponder these things. And as the Holy Spirit gave him the words to write this down, he starts writing this down to the church at Colossae, and he's saying, just think, just ponder, just meditate for a second on what the Lord has done for us. We have a lot of reason to be thankful, a lot of reason to be grateful. And for you and for me, in the context that we're in right now, the Lord's called us to grow mature in our faith. But he also gives us the same opportunity that he gave the Apostle Paul, where we can pray for God's hand to intervene in the lives of those that we love, that they too, along with us, would grow mature in our walk with Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this and and to see the things that, that you were impressing upon the Apostle Paul's heart to explain to us and to demonstrate to us that are things that actually matter. Lord, we know that there are many people in this world that seem to primarily value immaturity or opportunities to, to resist growth. And then we look at the context that the Colossian believers happened to be living in and serving in, and we realize that they were in a culture that didn't embrace their faith. They were in a culture that persecuted their faith. So there'd be a lot of tests along the way, but you gave them your strength and you were giving them your wisdom and you were inviting them to be thankful for the things that you had done in their lives. And as they walked with you, they became more and more convinced that these things were real. And as they read the Apostle Paul's words, they began to understand these things with more clarity as your spirit inspired these things to be written down. And then your spirit gave them the understanding to actually understand these things, just as your spirit is doing for us. So, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be men and women who ultimately value the spiritual maturity that you, you make available to us. Lord, we don't want to go through life stagnant or, or somehow thinking that we're at a level of maturity that is somehow sufficient. Lord, we know that that really can quickly turn into a form of self-idolatry. If we look at ourselves and think that somehow we're complete this side of heaven in the sense that we think that there's no more maturing or no, no more growth that we could experience, 
That's a form of self-deception. And so, Lord, we pray that we would not deceive ourselves that way. We pray that we would understand that there's always room for us to be growing until we're perfected in your presence. So, Lord, thank you for the growth that you allow us to experience when we carve out time to look at your word together. Lord, I don't know all the circumstances that are present here in this room, but I do know, Lord, that you, you know these things. You know the things that we're wrestling with. You know the things that at times we feel like we lack wisdom and we're seeking your discernment in regard to these things. You know the things that we're experiencing where we sometimes mistakenly believe that we don't have power to endure or to stand up against these things. Help us to rely on your power and to rest assured that you've given us that power. Lord, you know the things that are testing our patience and you know the things that that at times are trying to rob us of joy. But we also know, Lord, that the joy that you supply is not a joy that's dependent on external circumstances. This world can be going completely crazy, which it is, and yet we can have joy in the midst of everything that we see and experience. So, Lord, thank you for that. Lord, I'm so grateful that, that we can almost just, we just look at history unfolding before us as observers with kind of a curious eye, but also resting assured in the fact that we already know how everything wraps up. You already told us where this is all going. You already told us how this all wraps up. You already told us the glorious outcome that you have planned for those who know you and love you. And so, Lord, our, our hope is ultimately in you. And we're just grateful for the fact that in the midst of everything that we endure, in the midst of everything we experience, that that hope is a real thing. So, Lord, in the midst of peaceful times, in the midst of challenging times, and in the midst of confusing times, we pray that we would seek to grow in our walk with you. And we're just so thankful, Lord, for the fact that you assure us of your presence and that you're with us right now. We're truly grateful for all of these things, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks old in an iron lung, which is, you know, like a sealed oxygen unit. Uh, fighting for my life I couldn't I couldn't breathe properly I, and apparently I didn't make a sound um, from the day I was born because my lungs were all messed up that's Martin Smith of Delirious sharing a personal testimony on The Walk a podcast for worshippers join us weekly to hear songwriters worship leaders filmmakers and other creatives tell stories in the form of a devotional The Walk can be found on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast platform